Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show, and 12 years in, and it's just this myriad and collective web of a milieu of musicians that came up during a time where there was no template, there were no books about how to play certain things, there wasn't even a formula in the studio about how to make a record, and uh, as a result, uh, my guests grew up completely liberated on the drum kit, and uh, wound up uh, in the South Bay and then in the Bay Area with a whole bunch of people that I've interviewed on my program, uh, extending the vocabulary of modern American music. A lot of the cats he played with would be known as skiffle players or folk musicians in the sense that they uh, kind of just picked up the instruments and learned them on their own. And he's also played with many accomplished cats, including my dear brother Roberto Miranda, great jazzers who you know are now trying to figure out in the academy how to teach students to develop their own individual sound in a day and age when there just aren't that many gigs in order to feel comfortable to express who you really are. Carl Tossi, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hey, thank you. It's an honor to have you, man. I, you know, I, I really want you to talk to younger cats uh, about how invigorating it was to really just be an auditory learner on the drums. I mean, there was no curriculums outside of I'm not even sure if North Texas and Berkeley had jazz programs when you first started getting on the kit but there was no codifying of the language of jazz and I wanted you to talk about how that led to liberation for you on the drum kit uh, that's a really great question uh, very astute question as a matter of fact uh, a lot of the school was hanging out with the guys mm-hmm you know, going to New York and just hanging out with, a, with at the clubs and meeting the players and stuff like that. That's how you would really get into their stuff. But I found that like 30 years later, <laughs> I found that out. So <laughs> No, but you know, I know, coming... I mean, I know, I mean, San Jose had, Commander Cody talked about more of like sort of a swing, you know, Western swing jazz vibe, but I know there were there were some seriously greasy jazz clubs there. Were you checking those places out back in the when you were well, a kid? Yeah, well, yeah, it, d- d- different little. I can't even think of the names of the places, but there used to be little hangouts and stuff. But <clears throat> by the time that was happening, I w- I was in college, right. and I w- I was my parents were from San Jose, so I would go down there and. Uh, go to different clubs, you know, not a whole lot was going on, to be honest with you. But uh, <laughs> San, San Francisco had a whole other thing going on. Totally. Like, uh, when I was in college, I, one of my uh, college buddies was John Handy III that played with Charlie Mingus and Carnegie Hall on the Winterland album. Well, wait, let's just stop right there. I mean, I've, I, I've been at, at his beautiful home in Alameda. Thank you, Roger Glenn. John Handy one of the most legendary cats. I will say there was a place, I'm not sure if it was around when you were a kid, but it was called in San Jose called Popeyes. And it was like these venerable cats like John Turr, Clifford Coulter, Ronnie Beck. This is a little bit after, but um, I know most of those cats would get in the car after a 2 a.m. gig and drive up to Jackson Sutter in San Francisco and play the late nights at the dawn sessions. And, um, you know, I, I guess going back to just sort of the rudiments of the kit, you know, when you go back, I mean, I don't care if it's Papa Joe, Philly Joe, Art Blakey, you know, uh, Tootie Heath, 
Pete LaRocca, Mickey Roker, every one of those cats had their own individual sound. And I kind of wanted you to talk about how you developed your own sound on the kit. Oh, this is, that's a that's an interesting thing. I was at a clinic with uh, Elvin Jones. Oh dear! Oh dear! Conducting conducting it. Somebody said, "How do you create your own individual sound?" And he goes, "Aren't you an individual?" Ah, uh, making it sound <laughs> so easy, dude. <laughs> and what you do is, it's kind of like no matter what you do, you develop your own thing. But what most of the guys do is they transcribe what other people have done and they keep going over the, the concept, getting a history of where it was, where it's come to, and then you kind of take it where you want to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, Alvin basically kind of hit it in a nutshell. All you have to do is keep learning, keep learning, keep learning. It, it, it's almost like saying, how do I develop my speaking voice? Well, you can take vocal lessons and it can open up things, but you have your own voice. And when I was studying with Judy Davis on vocal, she said, some people's voices are only suited for certain kinds of singing. Right. And, you know, some people cannot, they don't have a rock style voice. They're suited for jazz or they're suited for R&B. Some people have a little extra and they can cover two or three genres. Uh, Some people are really gifted and for whatever reason, their voice is sitting in a pocket where they can do all of it. Absolutely. You see? So so you kind of have to figure out how high, how tall you are and that you can only fit in certain suits. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, no, I mean, I, you know, it's, I, I dig. I mean, I, I just, I feel like part of the magic of your generation is that, you know, today we're inundated with so much visual material, and so much of it is so mediocre. You guys were just oh, your ears. Well, I can, were huge. I can, I can really, I can. Yeah, my experience in LA has been an incredible one. I can take you there. Well, but what I really like, wanted, I, would, moment, I want you to talk yeah, about, the moment. yeah, I mean, I just, I, I, I was, I was just thinking that you could talk about, um, you know, ultimately if, you know, cause you, I mean, is it fair to say that you came up a jazz, a jazz fanatic? Um, yeah, it actually kind of started there. I mean, a little bit of rock and roll, you know, that kind of thing was, it was just coming in vogue, you know, and, um. But I, in high school, I wound up playing with, uh, and you've heard of Tom Harrell. Have you heard of Tom Harrell? Yeah, I, mean, I mean, I've seen him live. I actually, he's not been on the program. Absolute stone, brilliant genius, dude. Yeah, well, I played with him in high school. How did that happen? It was interesting. Um, there was a guy named Cliff Patterson that played piano. It was We were in the same class, you know, together. And... He goes, there's this, there's this guy, he's like, you know, just getting out of grammar school. <laughs> yeah. And his name is Tom. And uh, he's playing at a little festival at Holy Cross or something like that. This is like in Mountain View, California. So for some reason, I went there. I, I think I went with my dad or something like that. So we drive in this parking lot. We park the car and we're walking and we hear a band. And... They're playing the Saints Go Marching In. 
and there's this guy soloing <laughs> and just tearing it up. Oh man! And it's Tom. <laughs> it's like what year is this? You know, what year was this? Uh, oh God, that had to be like uh, maybe like '62 or '63. No, no, like. Uh, no, I, I I started college in '61, so it had to be like '57. Are you you wait? Hold on, you were at San Francisco State in '61. I started. Yeah, I graduated from high school in '61. Oh and then I started my dear State God! '61. Yeah. All right, so let's just. I mean, like this is so important because a lot of the cats. I mean, I've interviewed so many guys who were wound up coming to the Bay Area, maybe studied with. Uh, Bill, uh, Aladdin, Bill Matthew. Um, I'm, cu I'm curious about what it was. Did you go to San Francisco state, uh, for music? Can you talk about how, how, yeah. and, and ultimately yeah. how much f creative freedom you had? Because I mean, I don't even know if the, sh if Berkeley was even in, even up at that point. Well, here's, yeah, now we're going to step two now, um, you know, from my, uh, you know, high school days, meeting Tommy Harold, gigging with Tom Harold, with the Cliff Patterson trio. Um, this guy, Scott Gentry, I think, was playing bass at the time. Oh, my, kids, this you is know? filthy stuff, dude. And then, and then I went off to college, and uh, I, every now and then I'd hear about Tom on the radio, uh, <laughs> some radio show, like, what are you doing now? And he's doing this and that. And this is before he, I knew him, he didn't have a mental problem back then. You know, I knew him before that. Wow, wow. I mean, years years and years later, I saw him in L.A. 30 years later, and I went to the Catalina Bar and Grill to see him, and I had a note, and I handed it to Peter Donald, who was the head drum instructor at the Grove School of Music, and he was playing with Tom on that gig. And anyway, um, it, 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 this is a, this is weird because it was interesting. I found um, I parked my car and I had to park about a block away. It was you know it's just hard to park in. Sure, oh yeah, yeah, it still is. Yeah. And so I'm walking. I'm, I'm walking. I'm getting toward the club and I hear this trumpet, and it just hit me about when I was walking through the parking lot at Holy Cross going to this festival and hearing Tom playing at a distance. And now I'm walking up the street in L.A. 30 years later, and Tom's playing in this club, and I can hear him down the street. Oh, my. That is <laughs> so, so – you flashed so hard back to the, that day at Holy Cross. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and, you know, like 30 years – so anyway, I'm standing outside because they're doing the show, and they finish the show, and they open up the room, and I go inside and – uh uh, the band went into the green room or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and, and Peter came out and I saw Peter and flagged him over. And I said, uh, you know, my name is Carl Tassi. I played with, with Tom like 30 years ago in high school. <laughs> Can you give him this note? You know, cause I'd like to see him. So Peter went back and came back out and flagged me in. And I had about a half hour talk with Tom. In, in his dressing room, and uh, he was explaining about his his psychological difficulties. He was on Thorazine and stuff like that, which was interesting. Um, he was able to carry on a conversation, but it was very slow uh, because he was so heavily uh, sedated. Oh, man. And um, yeah. it, it was kind of heartbreaking. 
But what's interesting, to, uh, well, and let me back up a little bit. Sure. The note, the note, the note itself says, "Tom, I haven't seen you in 30 years. I'm Carl Tassie, and we used to play with Cliff Hasn't Trio. I'd love to see you tonight." That's great. And anyway, so I, I got in there, and and we're talking, and he remembered everything. He remembered Scott. He remembered Cliff. He, he remembered everything. Oh my! That's well, I'm not surprised. I mean, a lot of this stuff, a lot of these cats, right. the savants have these like you know memories that right. you can. So anyway, we, we talked at length about some stuff, you know. And you know what he told me? This is now, uh, this guy's on Thorazine. He's had issues. And we're talking away. And you, you know what he said, man? He goes, I've been lucky all my life, is what he said. Well, I mean, I, I, I you know, and I think that that, that, yeah, and I think that, you know, outside, listen, I mean, you can have... Is it Tourette's or schizophrenia? I'm not sure exactly what he's diagnosed with, but it's like you can, you can, you know, wear that and be saddled by it, or you can be. I mean, gratitude is the attitude, and when you look at, um, you know, the things that he's accomplished professionally, I don't know if he has kids or a family, but the point is, it's all, it's all positive attitude. That guy was in Azteca. That guy could play a most amazing bop music. So yeah, you know, it's only no, he's, you know once you, you, you only the person who who's going through it really knows. And to me, like that's just I've always tried to keep that. You know, granted, I mean, right. I, you know, I've always tried to keep that gratitude inside of me, even at forty five, just to just to be able to hang with Carl Tassie this Sunday. It's, I mean, it's 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 actually somewhat monumental, and I'm grateful for it, even though I'm still. You know, I mean, Steve Smith, you know, won't give me the time of day and still looking for Herbie Hancock. And But, you know, it doesn't matter. You, you have to look at look towards the light. And it's for so many of the guys that, that played jazz and were able to actually make a career playing the music they loved, I would be grateful too. Yeah, no, it was, it was interesting. And the bottom line was he was the same beautiful cat that I knew 30 years ago. Oh. It was just in a different format. Uh, then when I went out to see him play, the drummer walked him out, and his arms were just hanging to the side, and he had the horn hanging in his hand. Wow. And he got up on the bandstand, and I'm like, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> he counted off his tune, man. He put that horn to his lips, and you would not know. <laughs> you would not know the guy that I talked to in the dressing room was standing on that stage playing. And he did his soloing thing, did the head, did the solos. And then when the guys took over, his arms just dropped to his side. And his, his head was hanging forward. And, and uh, obviously he was listening to everything. And then when it was time for him to come in, he just stood upright, put his horns to his lips, and bam. It's just amazing transition. And I don't know if you know this, but he said that he has people in his head talking all the time. Oh, man. But when he plays, they disappear. So that's the one place of peace is on the bandstand, you know? He's playing his horn. He said it, it, it stops. It all goes away. Uh, there's and a couple that, amazing. Uh, I mean, that's a, a very powerful story. I, you know, this is really important. Did, did you, um, you know, I listened back to uh, Claire Fisher with Gary Peacock and Gene Stone on Pacific Jazz and then on the 
East Coast, of course, you had the incredible Village Vanguard concert with Bill, Scotty LaFaro, and Paul Motion. And I'm just figuring, I have to believe that, because that, that was the early 60s, this conversational trio where you had these bass players who were all of a sudden, you know, really coming to the forefront of the conversation. They weren't just keeping time. And the drummers were part of the melodic conversation. Did you have a chance to see cats like Motion and some of these guys who were just dancing on the cymbals? To me, it was the most... I could listen to that tape, that Village Vanguard well, yeah, tape. I mean, it sounds well, different yeah. every time. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, I knew John Ray. Johnny Ray, dude. Cal J... Dude, Drum, Drum City? Yeah. Drum Shop? Right. Yeah, I was. A, we were. I was not a close friend, but we were well acquainted because he used to come in town at San Francisco when I was. I was living there, and uh, he'd work at Kenny Williams Drumland. And, Drumland. Uh, that's what he used what to it call is. me, Mr. Tozy, all the time. Hey, Mr. Tozy. <laughs> oh, I love it. Hi, John. <laughs> so, but anyway, I don't know if you know this, but he was a vibe player. Yeah, well, no, I've I've seen because I I've seen him with uh, well, that's interesting. I didn't know that because I just only I've seen him play you know drums with with Jader, but it doesn't surprise me. All those guys could play all that percussion, right? But uh, to be honest, uh, uh, some people say that he was a better player than Cal. I would I, well, I mean, you know, all this whole thing about who's better and that. Johnny Ray is a legendary uh, rhythm rhythmatist. Was Joe Morello around at that time? Uh, I did meet Joe in uh, in Drumland one time. He was giving a lesson to, to one of the heavy duty guys up there. Uh, What's his name? I think it was. Uh, Can you talk about a lesson you got from Johnny Ray? I mean, these guys. Joe Morello would I didn't, not. I never. I never took a lesson from Johnny. But let me get to another point. Please. For the younger guys. Yeah. Uh, when I grew up, there was really no, you couldn't go and take jazz. So I wind up in college, and it's all symphonic stuff, <laughs> of which was not really what I wanted no, to do. Right. So my major was uh, major class percussion, which was timpani, xylophone, and snare drum. And that and those were the precursors to anything else you do. Uh, piate, meaning that the double cymbal thing, which is a whole other planet learn how to play them well they, they look basic but they're not because uh, I studied those also but what I did was um, I'm not sure well when I moved to LA let me jump forward I studied with Freddie Gruber and learned that the finger bounce technique one, yeah Gruber the, gri- yeah yeah one grip in four different ways it's the same grip turned over kind of like flying an airplane and when you bank it to the right the wings stay in the same spot. Right. You know, they move with the plane. Right. Okay. So, um, timpani, on timpani, you've got your French grip and your German grip is what they taught us. What I did was I learned from watching other guys that, oh, when they're playing on the cymbals, they're using French grip. See, I had a, I had a, a place to start from. Something to call out, like what? What are you doing when you go to the symbol? I didn't have to ask them. Oh. I could see them go with the thumb on top of the stick, and I'm going, "Oh, you just turn your hand this way, and now I'm on the symbol." And when I go to the snare drum, I'm in German grip with the right hand because I'm right-handed, and then I had traditional going on with the left hand. So 
years and years later, I moved to L.A., and I had an illness, and I was getting over that, and I hadn't played in a while. So I, I called around town and talked to some guys at some schools about what to do, because I, I didn't want to go to school. I just want to find a guy to check me out, because I hadn't been playing in a couple of years. So I, I wound up uh, calling Grove, and this is where Peter Donald pops in, because uh, I talked, they said, call this guy. He's the head drum instructor here. So I called Peter and I guess it was at his home and I told him about, you know, I've been ill and I got to want to get somebody to check me out. And I thought, well, okay, you know, Peter Donald had drum instructor. That'd be fine. So he, he goes, hold on. And he comes back and he goes, take this number down. This guy's Freddie Gruber. Wow. And I was like, uh, what year, wait, 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 what year was this? This had to be more like 1990-ish. Freddie was still alive yeah. at that. That's amazing. I didn't know he was still around because that dude was... No, he, he yeah. passed away in, in, in 2011. Yeah, he, he was a shaman cat for for guys like Gene Stone who were playing that conversational trio music. Yeah, and well, he was... Gene Stone, he told me to go watch the, Gene Stone. He goes, hey, oh, this is so beautiful. It's all... This is so valley, spiritual, you know? man. Jesus, my God. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I knew Gene, you know. Oh, my... I, I cannot believe... Because, I mean... Well, in fact, when I was just singing, I had Gene play on some of my gigs. Dude, this is making my day. Because, I mean, Gene, I haven't thought about Gene. I mean, we did an amazing interview that I'll send you. He talked about the finger bounce method, Freddie Gruber. That's what he called it. And uh, Right. You know, if we, yeah, but he studied with Freddie a long time Oh, ago. my. I cannot believe that you, it's coming full circle here 30 years later. But when you were, when you were, so... I, I just know there were cats. I mean, please tell me that you were going to see Thelonious, Dizzy. I mean, those, to me, like jazz was, I remember some well, of the Merry, yeah, some I of the Merry Pranksters, Dizzy. some of the Merry Pranksters, yeah. Ken Kesey and those guys, they would take Mingus back to the their house in La Honda and eat acid together. It was like 63. But jazz was oh, like, wow. jazz was like full on dance music at that time. Small ensembles. It was a little bit modal, but I really want, when you were done with your, in the academy, whatever that meant, in 61, where were you going? Were you going to Bob City? Were you going into the Fillmore District? Where were you going? Uh, Well, I used to go to the Jazz Workshop and the Both Ands. Oh, my God. um, And that was, yeah, right. But I mean, like. And the the big one for me was the Blackhawk. I saw Miles at the Black Hawk. I saw Dizzy at the Black Hawk a few times. In fact, I don't know if you even know this. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't. Black Hawk had two entrances. Oh, boy. It was a front entrance for the people who could stay in the main room, and then they had a back entrance where it was blocked off with like a chicken wire type thing for people under age. Sure, peanut gallery. Yeah, kind of, yeah. So it, they, it was a way to segregate them so they couldn't be in the alcohol area. And I used to go there before uh, I was able to get in the front door. And I saw Ahmad Jamal there. And um, who else? Can uh, you talk about, I mean, that is, that is, that is, oh my God. I mean, you saw all the original masters. And I just, I mean, what was the essence that you took away from them, especially like, I don't know who was playing. Maybe Tony was playing drums with Miles. I just, I, to me, like, it was, everything was so amazing. They were, 
The, the, the PA systems were not state-of-the-art. Jazz clubs, it probably sounded pretty good. But the dynamics of the rhythm section was just scintillating. I've, you know, I mean, to me, uh, that's the most beautiful thing about post-bop, cool jazz, whatever you want to label it. I just wonder if well, you can... One thing, yeah, go ahead. One thing about jazz musicians is they have the realization that everybody, everybody on the bandstand plays time. That's a, you nailed it, dude. You nailed it. There is no, there's no timekeeper. Dude, you, you, I can't believe, this is the Sun Ra ethos. Everybody needs to have their own inner time feel. You nailed it, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about, I want you to talk to young, so talk about how that's, how that allows the rhythm section to, to be freed up to play melodically. Because a lot of people think that, oh, the drummer's got to keep, be the timekeeper. No. Everybody's got to have their own time feel, and that allows the rhythm section to play melodically. Well, yeah, and it keeps everybody from crashing into each other. <laughs> it's, it's sort of like what Freddie would say: if you got a bunch of guys rowing the boat, they got to be in time. Oh my God, that is sick! Yeah, right, right. You know? It's syncop- Yeah, it's all or- it's it's all sort of like a flock of geese. They make a left turn. They all go together. But right. that also, exactly. you know, that yeah, right now, if you're depending on if you're depending on somebody counting or a metronome, here's a here's a thing for younger guys. Most guys practice to a metronome. They never practice with it. What does that mean? The, the, the distinction is when you practice to it, it clicks and you play along. After, you know, you hear it and you go, it click. Uh, uh. But when you're playing with it. You are part of it. You're at, it's clicking the time, and you play with that's, that that's time. Right, right. You don't play to it. Absolutely, you're not relying on it to keep that. You are you're, you are the time with it. Absolutely, right. And, and and the other thing too is once you get your ride symbol pattern down for the jazz thing. And you can make the the, the uh, metronome swing. That's when you got it. If you can hear the metronome not going tick 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 tick, and all of a sudden you're playing, and the metronome sounds like the other guy, some other percussionist going tick tick, you know, just it, it lays in there. That's it. That's that's when you know you've nailed it. <laughs> Talking to Carl Tass. I, I, I remember yeah. one time I was uh, woodshedding, and I had this. Um, I was on a practice, like a remote practice kit, and I saw my metronome wound down, and I was playing, and I looked at it, and the arm was swinging back and forth, and I stopped, and I could hear tick, tick, tick. I was dead on. Did you? Were you? Did would you say that? I mean, I think one of the things that's fascinating. From all the cats, I don't care if it was Ernie Watts or Gene Perla or Jan Hammer. I mean, all of them, when they were at Berkeley, they were playing in Herb Pomeroy's big band or they were playing in cruise ships that were going around the Boston Harbor. Can you talk about some of the earliest gigs you played when you got to San Francisco State and like what, what they were about? I mean, because Mills, oh, Mills College was yeah. thriving. There was a, Subotnik was out there. There was a lot of beauty. Well, yeah. Yeah, it, it's just, uh, I was like, you know, I'm from San Jose, so I had a lot of you know, little band things that I was doing in different, uh, you know, bars and this and that. 
just going to school and, and playing gigs, you know, driving home at uh, 2 in the morning to get up to go to an 8 o'clock class, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. So uh, one of the things I do remember was listening to K-Jazz uh, that was in Alameda at the right. time while I'm driving home, you know, after a gig. So, uh, well, we're, so know, we, I want to be clear. You were not, you were living in the Bay Area. You weren't commuting back to San Jose. Uh, well, that's another story too. Well, no, I, I'm, just, I was, I'm like, can you talk about some of those early gigs you had? Were you playing original tunes and, and ultimately like, you know, like the kind con- I mean, cause really, I mean, even I'm going to throw I, a name I, out there. I didn't there. get into original stuff until, uh, I got out of college I dropped out of, uh, I was getting a master's degree in creative arts from, uh, I got a degree in music and then I was, uh, I, tra- I changed over to creative arts, which was, uh, interdisciplinary studies. So I picked four subject matters and blended them together. And I did that for about a year. And then I heard about some band being formed from these people from Nevada. And at the time, it was, uh, it's not the famous band Oasis, but they called themselves Oasis because they had seven band members. And um, they had a management thing going on in San Francisco for some reason. And uh, so anyway, I wound up joining that band and I dropped out of grad school and we were going for a record deal and all that kind of stuff. And then that blew up. <laughs> Dude, I listened to the, I listened to a couple of tracks of Oasis. It is out of. I'm so psyched to get hip to that. It is burning, burn. It's definitely not. Oh, you know. Wait, I, yeah, I'm sorry. Did I say Oasis? It was the, the band I'm talking about. It was called Orion. Okay, so let's break, let's later, break this down. Orion. And yeah. then later, later, I wound up. Man, at the time, synchronicities are all over. I came down to L.A. to check out the scene, and there was some audition thing coming up, and I didn't have my drum set. So I went back to San Francisco, and then I drove over to Sausalito, and I went to this place called the uh, Sausalito Food Company to have lunch or something like that, which was close to this little family life school of music that I uh, used to teach out of. It was like a, you know, walk, just a little walk away, a couple of, not even a block. But I was in there and some lady singer, I remember that, I can't think of her name right now. I I saw her and, hey, how are you doing? And uh, she goes, oh, yeah, what are you doing? I said, well, I just came up to get my drum set and got this thing in L.A. And I said, you know, anybody else looking for a drummer? She goes, yeah, David will flame. (laughs) (laughs) Really? So I, I called David, and we got together at Mitchell Holman, the bass player from It's a Beautiful Day, was playing with David. As, you know, he had his own little band at the time. And uh, we went into the basement, and we, we played together. And it seemed to go okay, you know. So anyway, I, the next day I packed up, and I, I left. I came down to L.A., and then I was here for like a week. And I called him up for some reason. And it's like, oh, hi, Carl, you know. And I said, you know, I've been thinking about you guys. And he goes, well, we've been thinking about you, too. And I said, well, what, you want to get together again? I'll drive up. And he goes, oh, I, you know, you're in L.A. and you're getting settled down there and this and that, that kind of thing. 
So I said, let me come up. Let's just do it one more time, see, see if it works. So I go up there, and we go into the basement, you know, the rehearsal basement, <laughs> house, and uh, we start playing. And uh, David says, okay, come on, let's get this together now. We got to do this. And, and I was like, well, what, what do you mean? He goes, we got a gig, gig in seven days. Uh, what? Oh, my. Yeah. Wait, so you were talking, it was a, this was a... What? Go ahead. We were opening for the Sons of Champlin. <laughs> my, 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 it's so great because because I just found a record with Frank Haggerty. Did you know Frank? Terry's dad? No. Te Frank Haggerty played with Kid Ori in San Francisco. I mean, Frank Haggerty was the man, and the Sons of Champlin were by far the most sophisticated band to come out of the Bay Area. By far. Nothing was even close. That is unbelievable. Now, I just want to yeah, be... That, uh, yeah, it, what's even more unbelievable, I'm in a chat room on some music chat room in L.A. years later, and I'm, I wound up talking to the horn, one of the horn players that was in the band. Wow. Yeah, no, and I was going yeah, yeah. no, to ask you about... Um, okay, so the, the, I just want to be clear. Uh, before La Flame got you back in the basement... Uh, you what about this this band called the Free Thing? The, oh, the what do you pick up on the Free Thing? Dude, you you told me I I read your bio, bub. Okay, yeah. So, yeah well, I, you know, I, I I I haven't looked at it in years. Um, the Free Thing was a thing I developed in college for some practicum courses with video and music, and. Uh, but that was pr kind of prior to that. It was a free improvisory jazz group. And what we did was we used to like jam together in this practice room. And then we got into like, why don't we create an introduction and make it a little bit freer? And then we would do this introduction, improvise an introduction, and then we go into the song. Right? Wow. This so, is so in my wheelhouse, right? The here. introduction started getting longer <laughs> <laughs> until finally we're, some guys are improvising in a counter key to the song we would pick out to do. And sometimes we wouldn't even get to the other song, but something else would pop out. And on top of all that, it wasn't about choruses, the choruses would be going along. But they could be stretched or shrunk. Oh, I love this. Or somebody might take over the lead in the middle of an eight-bar phrase. I mean, it, it was so. Really so I want to be clear about this. Who, first of all, I need who are the cats in the band? Whoa, I I I don't even remember. Well, I want to be clear because there was something. There was a. I'm going to throw out a few names here because there were cats. Uh, in a group called, ironically enough, called LSD, Light Sound Dimension, and it was Noel Jukes, Jerry Grinelli, uh, George Morobus, and they played on Fillmore, and they would just play behind a... Oh, George, George Morobus. Yes. Uh, Please talk. Dude, George Morobus is in my soul on this entire 12-year journey. Take it away, George Morobus. 
Yeah, wasn't he? Uh, his wife, Gail Maribus, was married to Smith Thompson after they got divorced. Oh, I, that I don't know, but I mean, George Maribus, I mean, the, the thing about Maribus is that people said that he could just be smiling at the audience for 15 minutes and they'd be just fine with that. He was such an entertaining cat. But those guys were behind a black, a black curtain. They would be playing to the first sound they heard and just basically playing completely free with a lot of light, the early light shows, Bill Ham and the, and that kind of stuff. Oh, and, yeah, okay. Yeah, so were you... Yeah, I was not part of that scene. I was not part of it. I knew Jerry. His, actually, Jerry Grinelli's wife was a part of the administration at State College when I was there. <laughs> you know, J Jerry, we lost him like last year. He was a dear supporter of my program and such an amazing drummer. Uh, oh my! Well, t yeah, of course. Yeah, well, he no, he studied heavily with Joe Morello. Absolutely, and he played his ass off with uh, Bolasete and and Garaldi too. But did you he, this band the free yeah. the free thing? Now, was this just a, a cutting room floor thing, or were you guys actually playing gigs? No, we were just you know just basically on campus doing stuff, and then we brought it into video projects and. Um, and I had a video class, and the guy, the teacher was saying, like, what do you want us to do? And I said, well, we're going to play free improvisation music, and you're going to video the band in a free improvisation format. And he goes, what do you mean? <laughs> and I, said, I said, look, I said, and, and we, had a, we had a flautist, right? Yeah. And I said, you see the cameras on the flute, right? And he goes, Yeah. I said, don't video that. When the flute starts playing, you see the light coming off the flute? Video that. Oh, dude, man. And he was like, what? You know, this guy was a heavy-duty uh, producer back in New York before he, uh, what was his name? He was, it was a German guy. Um, the point is that you <sighs> used that multidisciplinary approach that you took as, as, a, as a student and blew his mind open because you wanted the light off the flute. Right. That's. I mean, and I don't. I, said, I don't even care said, who this guy. I don't care who this guy was. That you. You knew what you wanted. Yeah, his first name was Herb, I think. Um, and then I said, "Now what you're going to do is you're going to see the vibe player. We had a vibe, the flute, bass, and drums. And I, this is coming back to me now, like 50 years later. Good. Our conversation is triggering it. And I said, "You see." The vibes, they had the little things spinning under the bars. Can you see that? And they're spinning, right? And I said, now take the light from the flute and superimpose it over the bars and then blend <laughs> it in, and then you come up and show the vibe player. And he never, never thought of anything like that. You know, it was a little more commercial mindset for him. Herb Zettel. Zettel, Zettel. Did this stuff is this stuff circulating anywhere? Did it ever actually come out, like in some sort of commercial or YouTube fashion? The video? Uh, he had actually no, it did not. Uh, but he had some famous composer. I'm trying to think of his name right now. Come and see the result that we got. Oh my God! This is yeah. this, I'm, 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 can we get a year on this, by the way. Sixty five. What is this? What year? Yeah, around there. It had to be around there because I left. I was there for seven years, so around sixty-eight. 
because I had done, I started post-grad work and then I left in the middle of that to join this rock band. <laughs> so I just want to be clear that the rock band was uh, Orinda that you joined. Is that what you, who you... No, Orion. Orion. Now, just to, before we move on, did you know another incredible drummer uh, was out there at that time, uh, played with and Joe Henderson, played with Van Morrison. Was, his name was uh, Steve Mitchell. Yes. Yes. Steve. Yeah, he, he actually he went to the uh, music institute. He was playing in an, in a band of. I mean, I can't even. I would have been so psychedelicized if, if I was out there. I mean, the amount of free. Imp, he was playing improv music. I, I just. You're telling me though, you really couldn't sing for your supper, doing this, even though you were dwelling in this incredible. Imp, I mean, it just sounds so scintillating. It wasn't like you were. There was. There weren't clubs or coffee houses i'm not talking about the both and or the blackhawk but there weren't places that you guys could could really get this stuff out in a live setting no it was more like an academic setting and we're and we were being creative <laughs> as opposed to academic if you know the distinction oh uh, absolutely you know. dude you had full creative control as a student which is unheard of which is so amazing yeah. but the thing is we had to make it happen that way. Right. It wasn't that they allowed us to do it that way. We were not allowed to play jazz in the practice rooms. It was not part of the academic curriculum. So what I did is I went to my composer's workshop instructor and said, I want to build an improvisory jazz group for my composer's workshop class. Wow. So when we were busted... <laughs> why are you playing this stuff in this room? I said, "Oh, it's, I'm sorry. It's part of our. Uh, it's part of our class." So this is so could... insane. You're talking. This is because at Howard University, Eddie Henderson, the great trumpet player, was playing Killer Joe. That was an all-black school. '64 security guard came in. He goes, if "I hear you playing that end music. I'm going to shoot you." Jazz was not Roberta Flack and. Those cats went to Howard. There was no jazz program. They thought it was the devil's music. You're telling me San Francisco State, same thing. They didn't want you playing that music. Well, yeah, but not for those reasons. Uh, the reason was that they were symphonically oriented. and they Oh, my God, what doing... snobbish people, man. Well, um... Somewhere, yeah. I mean, but if, yeah. you're telling me that all those cats, uh, what it comes down to is, did they, were some of the professors, I know you were, but did they recognize the brilliance of of Chet Baker, Bill Evans, and Vince Guaraldi? They just couldn't really improvise? I mean, why were they so anti-jazz? Jazz was flourishing at that time. Well, they're not anti-jazz, but there was somebody who was like more curriculum-oriented. I don't want to mention the name, but he was head of the instrumental department, and he was the big guy that would run around and try to crush this and crush that. But there are other other professors that you know, like even Roland Koloff. He goes, "I know what you're, you know, what you want to do, <laughs> you know, he, you know," and he, you know. He, he wasn't opposed to it. He just, you know, like, you know, Carl liked to play on drum sets. <laughs> and so what I did is I, I, I did, going back to your first question, yeah. when we opened the conversation, yeah. I took what I learned on snare drum, on timpani, and on xylophone, cross-sticking methods and stuff like that, and I applied it to the drum set. 
So this is going back to the young guys, like, what what's going on with you, right? How did you do this, okay? Right. So now that we hit this pedestal, let's move on to L.A., and I meet Freddie Gruber, and I go in to take up my first lesson with him. Um, but before that, uh, I had a phone call with him. We talked about Zen Buddhism for about a half an hour. That's beautiful. God is beautiful. And, and he goes... You know, man, you gotta come down. You gotta meet the guys. You gotta meet the guys. I was like, who the hell are the guys? <laughs> you know? so I didn't, you know, because everything is kind of formal in life. So I go there, and these guys are like hanging. And he's giving a drum lesson to somebody in the drum room in his house, you know, and he's got four or five guys in the living room waiting to take a lesson for like three or four hours. And, you know, they come in from Vegas, and one guy comes in from San Diego, and I was basically like five miles away. I'm, I'm hanging out. So I'm meeting these guys, and they're all like players. I mean, real players making money, seriously making and touring and stuff. And they're taking a lesson from Freddie. And I, because I, I, you know, what, what are you learning, you know? So, um, so I'm there at the house and we're talking about it and Freddie comes out, you know, hey, okay, you know, these are the guys, Ian Wallace and King Crimson wow. and so-and-so came in from Vegas, he's doing a show there, he's got to get back. Hey, man, do you mind if he takes a lesson first because he's got a long drive to go, you know? Um, every lesson was an hour, uh, but you might have to wait two hours like going to the dentist in order to get in there. <laughs> then Steve Smith would walk by or come by, and then uh, Clayton Cameron would come in, and then everything would stop, and he'd say, Clayton, you've got to show these guys a little bit about your brush stuff, you know? So then Clayton would go into the drum room, we'd all be around him, and he'd play do all the stuff on the brushes about what he's been doing and the book he's writing and all this stuff. And then we get this other kind of lesson, in the middle of the lessons, and it was like Drum City, you know, always going on. Uh, so anyway, um, it came my turn, and I go in the drum room, I'm sitting there, and he goes, uh, just play a simple beat, just a simple beat, you know, like boom, boom, bat, boom, boom, bat, you know, okay, bass drum, left hand, snare, high, high hat. So I'm going boom, boom, bat, and he goes, hey, your hands look pretty good. Well, thanks, you know. I didn't know, you know. (laughs) Okay. And then he starts to go, okay, but your balance point on your stick is such that you have to work a little bit more to do it. If you put it here, it works better for you, and you're pushing the beater ball into the bass drum, and that's kind of choking your tone. And he gets into this stuff, and it was... I left there at four in the morning. <laughs> you took a six-hour lesson, dude. <laughs> no, I was hanging out after my lesson, watching him give other lessons. Jeez. And um, I, I remember saying goodnight to Freddie. Uh, he was like behind a little screen door. He was like, I'm, I'm outside. And, you know, I said, thank you. I'll be back next week. Yeah, okay, we'll see you. And I took a step to my car, and my hand went right to my forehead, and I went... Everything I just witnessed is upside down and backwards from what everyone is teaching, and it makes the most sense. I just cannot, I cannot believe what just, uh, uh, Carl, I just got informed that Ahmad Jamal passed away. Oh, wow. And I did a, I'm going to send you that interview with him tonight because 
he, I did it. I, God bless Ahmad Jamal, man. You know, I, I got to go back to the Bay Area for a minute. I'm not going to let you get away with it. I need you to talk about a few guys and how uh, Orion fit into that because, and then ultimately, because you moved away from the sort of free jet. I the 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 guy. I want you to talk about. There's a couple guys. I mean, you know. Oh, why? why your mo- I, uh, okay. Yeah. I, I think I think I know where you want me to go. With no, no, no. I want I want to just uh, Yorma and and Garcia were folkies. I asked this to Cutler. Um, I wanted you to talk about how aware you were of two guys, John Cipollina and Jerry Miller. They were arguably the first two rock guitar players in the Bay Area. I wanted you to talk a little bit about, um, you clearly weren't... Well, I, yeah. I actually knew John Yeager, and he played in a couple of bands with me. In fact, he played with uh, Oasis, uh, who was with The Final Solution. Dude, the, please talk about Yeager. He blew my mind when I was listening to these Oasis tracks. He is a fiery dude. Where I never heard of that cat. Yeah, I don't know what he... I lost contact. Uh, we were roommates at one point and then he lived on the off the panhandle at one point i used to go see him over there all i'd get there at his pad you know and all it was was an empty room with a bed a cup of coffee and a percolator and his his guitar and he had his books on his bed and that's all he did was all day was practice that's it um, it was a, and I, 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 I visited him while he was practicing. He just kept practicing and talking. <laughs> like what, what? What would you say? Like, what, with the, with, like, was he? He was an early rocker too, but he. I mean, because he doesn't get any of the publicity that, let's say, you know, like I'd mentioned before, like Chipolina. Well, right, he wasn't famous, but he was uh, with one of the first rock bands in San Francisco, The Final Solution. Now, what was the? That's now you blew. You just blew my mind there. You went to Never Everland. The final solution. Where? Where did they come from? Who were they? Well, I, I remember. I think the band leader, if there was one, was Carl Facilius. Oh dear, you are going deep and, in the bag right now. And uh, and I knew John. Um, I met John when he started playing with Orion. So, so the lineage is like. John Yeager was with Orion, and we went through this whole process, and then things broke up, and this and that. And then when we were going into the Oasis thing with Steve Barncard recording and producing it, and Joel Siegel was the leader of that band, and the singer was, well, we had a couple other singers prior to who we settled with. Right. And one of them was Valerie Carter. No way. Yeah, one of them was Valerie Carter, and she wound up going with, uh, like, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever you call it at the time, um, Richard Hovey, who was one of the singers, writers, and rhythms in the R.J. Fox band, which was pre-Oasis. No, so I want to be clear, was was Oasis the first name, or R.J. Fox was the first name? R.J. Fox, I, well, here's another one. Oh, man, uh, you know, I, I wish I had a, a timeline. <laughs> it, it's all, dude, listen, this is so beautiful. This is so important, man, so just take your time. This is really important. 
I, I answer the some call to go talk to some guy about <laughs> joining a band. So I'm going and I'm talking to this guy and we're kind of hanging out. And somebody else rings the doorbell and in walks this guy, Marty. I didn't know who Marty was, but they talked for a while. And then uh, before Marty left, he goes, hey, man, if you want to be famous... These guys need a drummer. And he gave me, <laughs> they, they live up on Jackson Street. And it was just up the street from where I was living in, uh, on Washington Street in uh, San Francisco. So I'd go, to, I'd go to this place, and it turned out to be R.J. Fox. And they were being produced through the David Crosby people. And, and they were doing a thing for Atlantic, as far as I remember. Yes. And then some weird stuff came down regarding some legal things through the management of the Grateful Dead, I believe. And they got shelved because Atlantic got very upset about what was going on. And um, oh, I'm sorry. What? 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 what, You have any idea what was going on? I I hate to give misinformation out absolutely no i mean but it was like they were was it like because i mean wally hyders was cranking at that time crosby was i mean were they just well that's what they that's what they recorded um i i met them when when they were doing their uh, album and they had kreutzman on drums and um the other guy um they were both uh um, phil lesh no no that's bass um the drummer from the airplane at the time was oh, Spencer, Spencer, Dryden. Spencer Dryden. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what, what they kind of did was a double thing where one of them would play the time and the other guy would do the fills. Um, dude, you're making my, this is more, wait, hold on. You walked in on this. This is you, you saw this, them shedding in, in, in hiders and they were doing, well, well I was, yeah, yeah I got kind of, I wasn't there all the time because I wasn't that much into the band at the, at, the, at the time. But I, you know, knew this stuff was going on. And I heard tracks recorded, uh, guitar tracks, you know, like, you know, not finished tracks, but just listen to this guitar sound. Look what Steve did with this guitar sound. I said, God, it sounds like he's standing inside the guitar. I, the barn card at that time was, I mean... If I could only remember my name, no, there were no baffles in there. Uh, right. There was, I just, okay, so th- that was, ha- so there was, there was some kind of chicanery, Atlantic pulled the deal, and then you. Yeah, it was, if I remember correctly, um, you know, it's all, you know, from 50 years ago. My recollection is that. They had this deal going on, and they were supposed to just sign it and renegotiate. In other words, we want to move forward. We want you guys recording. Just sign the contract so you can do it, and we'll renegotiate. Wow. So when they went down there, somebody called, I think, L.A., and it turns out that the band wound up with the contracts. The record company did not. And I think it was, I think, 
It was through the debt management. And when they went to negotiate, as opposed to renegotiate, they said, what do you mean? We're here to renegotiate the contract. He said, no, we're here to negotiate the contract because we have the contract. Right. Oh, man. <laughs> they didn't. Oh, man. So Atlantic is, you're trying to rip us off or something to that effect, and they can't. And it just shut it down. So that broke up. Uh, and, uh, you know, I guess, it, you know, it's got to be longer than that, right? But it, for our conversation, that was it. And so I wasn't in the band, right? Because there was no band. Right. Um, so I'm doing a thing, going to L.A., and then, I, and then I went on the road with David. And that was about nine months. And then I was, I left that... And I was living on Washington Street, and who moves halfway up the street from me is Joel Siegel, band leader for R.J. Fox. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is So I just want to be clear. I'm looking here, retrospective dreams. I mean, it's kind of, it's funny. It says 71 to 77. So in basically 71, things fell apart. And then when did you get back? When did you get onto Washington Street? Like 73? That would, well, the album came out in 73, right? 71. R.J. Fox, Retrospective Dreams, 71. No, 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 no. That's, that's something else. You're talking about Oasis? Um, Oasis? Uh, the, uh, the Oasis thing was in 73. That's right. That's exactly. So, right. and, so, and so you go. So, you, you and were, then I went, I, I was on, out with David. Yeah. See, Oasis was in 73, so, okay, so going forward, like around 71, I guess it is, then Joel moves up the street, we start talking, you know, we're running into each other on the street, and um, all of a sudden, um, they get this place in Mill Valley called the Houndstooth Inn, which was an old club slash restaurant bar. I have never heard of that place, that is so bad at, where was it, San Anselmo? Sausalito? Uh, no, yeah, more like, uh, no, no, San Rafael. San, Ra San, Rafael. San Rafael, okay, yeah, okay, the Houndstooth, okay. yeah. And so not only was it this little back road to the Houndstooth, but right around up the way a little bit was the Grateful Death other studio. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then, and Barncard comes in, and he took over the kitchen, and he put in, uh, you know, multi-tracks and all this other stuff, and there was a little stage in the club, and we used to stand on the stage to play, you know, and then we kind of lived in it. Oh, my. Um, this is blowing uh, my mind. Yeah, John Yeager was living in a cooler. And, uh, <laughs> our, we, one of our roadies was living in the little green room all to the side of the stage, oh. and I was on a couch by the mailbox, and another guy was living... Where was George living? There's another little place that they had. There were like four or five of us living in this studio. And uh, so we didn't have any, you know, we just get up and play. But um, it was called the Hound's Tooth Inn. And uh, I don't know, somebody had the money to rent it for us, so we, we just lived there. And uh, and that's and then we would find there would be other people who would kind of sponsor you know, we find somebody with that had money that liked the band or liked the idea, and somebody finally put together a package on condition to record it while they hide it. It's like four thousand dollars down, and if um, 
if we got a deal, they get 40 grand. Something like that. Right. So, so, uh, yeah, so anyway, there, there, John Yeager was with me and we were living in the studio. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> wait, was, did Sherry Fox join up at that point? Well, the, yeah, the thing was, uh, with Valerie and the boyfriend from RJ Fox, they got involved in a band out of LA called Howdy Moon with another singer. Wow. And they were starting to move in another direction there. So Valerie was gone. And then I remember getting a phone call and Steve and Joel invited me to go to this place near like Larkspur or something like that, uh, where Sherry was living. And um, so we go and we're talking to her. And she, we're talking about music and our careers and, and this and that. And she goes, you know, I'm performing with these guys. And they don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, she was kind of depressed. Right, you know, like right. I, I do this, I write this song and they look at it like, what? So we said, well, play one of the songs that you played them, you know. So she played this thing, man. And we were like, What? Is going on there, you know? Every way of a man. I, did you hear? You heard that? Yeah, comment? sure, sure. So she's playing piano and singing on that thing, man, in the studio. But when Steve recorded it, he brought a Nagra, I think it was, and set it up and recorded all her little performances with us. And you can hear the birds in the background. Oh my! Tripping this in, is you know, it's like kind of in the country, right back in there, and uh, you can hear little birds chirping, and she's playing piano and singing. <laughs> and then, this is interesting about Barn Card. I, I hate to shift it like this, but go ahead. He'll take any scenario and make it gold. I mean, I did some basic tracks with Joel and me, and I had a, a soul kit. A bass drum, a snare drum, a cymbal, and a hi-hat. <laughs> and he had two mics, two mics. And Joel, you know, and we laid down some tracks in his living room. And he transferred them to the big machines. And then we recorded over that on some of the stuff. And some of the stuff was live. And that brings me to another point. Now I said, that. well, I just I want to say, this is you're, them. you're just, you're, so I just really like, did that ever actually get pressed on? Did that record come out at the time or did it only get re released later? No, it came, it came out as a demo type thing in 73, like 500 copies or something like that. Like a 45 or something like not a, not a full 33 and a third. It was a it was an album. It was an album. Cover. Yeah, like like a yeah. You haven't seen the cover? I just I've never I I the only thing that's available is something that was reissued. You know, that was like a compilation of R.J. Fox. I've never seen that actual LP, like the original one of the Oasis one. Yeah, the Oasis, um, the, yeah, the Oasis. Wait, yeah, that exactly. Well, I'll tell you, I'll probably, when we get done with this, I'll hopefully I'll remember, I can 
see if I can find a copy and dude, I'm gonna be coming out to LA to do some video with you in, at that farmer's market, man. Are you kidding? This is we've only just I was just gonna say we've been cooking here for an hour five minutes. We have a lot more to do. You wanna do can we do set two this week or you know, maybe I can get back to you because I think that it's a good time to uh to, to have an well, interview. Let me let me leave, uh, leave you with this. Then. Hit it. Um, we're, I'm in the studio with Stephen, and Grace Slick shows up, and uh, he's talking to her, and uh, he decides to show her this basic track, and so she sits in the gallery, and I'm I'm sitting behind her, and we got the big L text up. You know, they had the big four L texts up in this. If you sure. Hiders, and so anyway, uh, he runs this track. Um, I'm trying to think of the tune. It's kind of an up-tempo thing. Uh, we were kind of considering it might be the single, uh, that that kind of a, a thing. But anyway, so he runs the track, and it finishes. And she looks back at me, and she goes, um, are you in the band? <laughs> yeah. I said, yeah. I said, yeah, you know. What, what instrument? I said, well, I'm the drummer. And she oh, you guys sound really good. Can you do it live? And I said, Gracie, that is live. And she said the airplane had never been able to do a live track. Everything was stacked. That's uh, what she told me. Yeah, well, that, I mean, well... <sighs> Carl Tassie, I mean, Tassie, man, I, I got to be honest. This has been, I'm so grateful that Cutler connected us, man. I mean, you are a treasure trove of incredible history because you were on the scene. There was a cat. I'm just going to leave you with this. You know, everyone thinks Sly Stone uh, started funk in Oakland, but actually uh, the, the guy that was cooking out there, and I just talked to him, he still lives in Berkeley, Early 60s, the original godfather of funk, Johnny Talbot. Do you remember that name? I do not. Yeah, Johnny Talbot was playing in the Fillmore. Uh, James Brown and Marvin Gaye used to come and see him all the time. He was playing uh, when Charles Sullivan owned the, was all black down there. Um, and he it was it was early 60s, and he was doing... He was doing funk. He was the original father of God. He was the original funk master. I mean, just the, the idea that you were in that area pre, pre summer of love, pre psychedelics, really pre like, I mean, just pre skiffle band. I mean, and then you were obviously having this aesthetic of blending all this multi media and music and improv. I mean, you were right in the pocket of Jake Feinberg, even though I, I didn't come along until well, 78, man. You know, it, it, you keep saying Skiffle, and I was like, you know, I actually wound up playing with and knew Philo Hayward. Um, dude, stop right. Way. I cannot believe you just dropped that name. I cannot believe, because Billy Kreutzman, Philo used, I think he built one of the first state-of-the-art students. That dude was, rest in peace, Philo. He is with us today, man. I, I was roommates with him in, in uh, Sausalito. When I was living at the Houndstooth, he came up to me one day because he knew those people. The same people he knew, the same people. And he goes, look, man, you don't want to live here anymore. <laughs> he goes, I'm, get, I'm getting a place with this friend of mine who's a tennis pro. 
in in Sausalito, and uh, you want to you want to join us? So we found this. They had this place. It was kind of a weird place. But then uh, a couple of months later, they found a place in the Banana Belt, and it was you know where the Valhalla is. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. And you go up in this canyon. And it whoops around, and you go up this weird road, and boom, you, there's a parking area. And right on the side of this hill or mountain were these two apartments. And we had the top one. And it overlooked the bay. <laughs> and I would have my practice pad set there. Oh my dude, you I mean this is a this out is out of a dream, man. This is Philo, man. You know, what's, what's weird to me is when I was talking to Bill about this, yeah. what we're doing, I said, I, I don't really know what I can offer him. Oh, boy. I, I, I know, I know, I know. And you I, can, you I, offer I, a lot. I, I got nothing, you know, and he goes, no, man, no, man, you've been through a lot, you've done a lot of stuff now. I mean, look what you're doing, you know, from drums to this and that. And here's another thing, too, by the way. I've been in quite a well, Two or three, maybe four bands with Bill. Well, I want to spend a whole. I want to spend a whole session on. Uh, I did not know we were going to cook for seventy minutes. I actually have to go to. Uh, I have to go I to see. Either, but this is. I find you very. Uh, well, wait till I. I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you a few interviews from all your old buddies, like Steve Mitchell. I mean, I've been on the. The reason Cutler connected us is because. I mean, at four, you know, like I, as a Gen Xer at forty-five, nobody's doing what I'm doing, and believe me, man, you are in my wheelhouse. So I'll call, I'll, I'll, no. I'll call you this week, and we'll set up a time to do set two. I, I want to talk about heroes and Cutler. Like, what's interesting? Yeah. What's interesting about Bill and myself is I've been in different bands with him, where I've been actually kicked out of the band and replaced, but we have remained friends for all this time. When he came to LA recording, we got together and we had lunch together. And we've, there's a, this interesting relationship that we have. It didn't matter to me. Um, he's kind of a neat guy. I'll put it that way. Well, he's one of the coolest, brilliant people I've ever known. And I just, anyway, man, yeah. I'll call you this week. I'll get you a copy of this later and, and we'll do uh, set two uh, really soon. Yeah. But, um, Maybe the same time, same station type thing uh, might work out best. Yeah, I mean, you want like Sundays are good for you. I think yeah, like around three thirty, four o'clock or something. All like right, that. yeah. Well, uh, all right, so let's. Uh, I'll. I'll uh, we'll do uh, three thirty a week from today. Yeah, I mean the way you're you're working the conversation is so incredible to me. <laughs> you're kind of letting me do free form. Uh, you know, when I get an idea, you know, you let me go there. Um, and then, and then the greatest thing is we always finish, you know, we might leave the idea for a minute, but then we'll come back and hit it again later. It's like a jazz set, you know? But yeah, yeah. I mean, the, but the bottom line and, and what you said earlier about individual and reporting, you know, like that's in my, that's in my mind now, the way you set up the whole thing, um, in, in light of that, with this, the Freddie Gruber thing, this is for younger guys. Yeah. Freddie Gruber taught an approach, not technique, an approach of how you do 
what you do on the drum set to make it work, what flows in the time of the universe. I want to stop right there. That's poetry in motion right there. That's freaking amazing, dude. Thank you, so, Carl. Thank you, Carl Tassi. I, we'll, we'll do it again. You're more than welcome. I, 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 uh, I really, you have a great vibe to be, you know, it's not a typical interview vibe. I knew, no, I mean, I, I just, I always love people that are, you know, not, I don't know if skeptical is the right word, but yeah, man, I'll send you some interviews and you'll see who I've been duking it out with. I found my voice, man. Like you said, you got to find your voice. It takes a while, but you need that experience on the bandstand. It's an honor, man, and uh, we'll do it again. Well, yes, I'm. I, I'm. I'm. Uh, I don't know what to say. I, I just. Uh, it's very enjoyable talking to you. Love you, man. I'll send you a copy of this later tonight or tomorrow. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. Already. All right. Be cool, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye.